This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. This morning I'm going to talk about the prodigal son. It's our third message in this series called Once Upon a Time, how Jesus' story has changed our story. And and honestly, one thing that I've learned, and we've actually been sharing this with our interns, is the way that the Bible works is we are seeing chapters and verses connected to every single book. But yet, the way that it was originally written, it was just one big book. And so you have to oftentimes go backwards for a chapter and then forward for a chapter to get the context of what's trying to be said. And so, interestingly enough, in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32, there's this story called the prodigal son, or some of your Bibles will have a little caption that says, the parable of the lost son. And so we're going to talk about that this morning, but if it's okay, I'm going to go backwards and start at the beginning of the chapter in verses 1 and 2, just to give the context to this story. So you understand what's happening, who the players are in the discussion, who's around. And it's literally Jesus and his disciples sitting with a whole bunch of sinners, okay? And so this is what he does. This is how it goes. It says, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him and to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained. So this is the religious leaders of the day. They start complaining and they say, This man receives sinners and eats with them. What in the world is he doing? Total contrast here between the, 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 the philosophy of the religious leaders of the day and the philosophy of Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah. These religious leaders literally openly mock him and criticize Jesus for hanging out with people that they basically have said you shouldn't be with. And then the one thing I've always come to the conclusion of is how can somebody who doesn't know Christ get to know Christ unless Christ is around them? How can light penetrate darkness unless light's around darkness? Now, where we get into trouble sometimes is our light gets snuffed out because we hang around too much darkness and darkness influences us. But every time Jesus came into a room and he walked into the room, everything changed. Right? Everything changed. But interestingly enough, when Jesus responded to this comment, he didn't respond with the parable of the prodigal son. He responded with three parables, three stories. Because he wanted to make his point heard. Because he didn't think that he would, the religious leaders of the day would actually understand it if he just told the first one. He didn't think they'd get it if he just told two, so he tells three. So he tells the first thing is the story of the lost sheep. And he describes to them the importance of when one is lost, we need to drop everything we're doing to go get him. He didn't end there. He goes on and he tells the story of the lost coin. And he says, if we lose one coin, we've got to literally drop everything we're doing and look around the house until we find that coin. Why? Because he was trying to explain to them that the reason why we're on earth, the reason that our mission is here, is to find that which was lost and make it found. He didn't end there. He ended with the big whammy, the long story. Because I think Jesus put the Pharisees into the story called the older brother. He put them right in there. He put the sinners right in there and the tax collectors right in there, and then he put himself in there somehow. And so I want you to know that in all three of these parables, there are literally five things that are the same kind of connection points through all three of these parables. The, the first one is this, that in each story, an object or a person is lost. How many have ever lost something? How many have kids and you lose something every day? It's because your kids have taken them and hidden them in your shoes. 
Right. How many have ever found your keys in your shoes? Come on, put your hand up. Come on now. How many have ever found your keys in the dollhouse in your child's room behind her bed? All right. How many have a clapper or a snapper for every item that you own in your house so that you can find it from your kids? Amen? Okay, we're good. But in every case scenario, something or someone was lost. The second thing is this. All were owned. I've often asked this question. Why in the world would they be so diligent to look for it if it was someone else's? They didn't look for what was someone else's. They looked for what was theirs. And so you have to understand that Jesus' mission is to continuously, with every single breath of his life, to look for those that are lost because they're his kids. He's not going to stop until he finds everything and everyone that's lost. Amen? The third thing is this. All remain valuable to the owner despite being lost. Just because it was lost didn't mean he, the value changed. It didn't mean their worth changed. If anything, he probably was more stimulated the way he thought about them in that moment. The fourth thing is this. The owner having others around, like the lost son, the lost coin, all these other things, never turned away his focus from recovering that which was lost. Fifth thing is this. The focus is on the love of the owner for the lost object. Are we getting a picture of his response, threefold response to the religious leaders of the day? to get them to see that that which is lost is of utmost importance to Jesus Christ. Three key stories, three parables, literally speaking about the very heartbeat of God for humanity. Amen? Interestingly enough, the prodigal son has three key figures in it as well. Has the prodigal son, has the older brother, and has the father. Three very significant roles that they played. And we're just going to start by reading the story this morning, and then I'm going to kind of pick it apart, if that's okay. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. You can follow on the screen behind me. It starts with this. It says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them to his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, say, when he came to himself, right, that's a big phrase. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. He arose and came to his father. And when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Bring out a ring and put it on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry for this son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is now found. And they began to be merry. And now his older son was in the field. Now is where you're going to get the religious leaders. Here we go. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. And because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood and harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost, and now is found. Powerful story. I want to talk about three people in this story. The first one is the prodigal son. And if I can put a little phrase on it this morning, I want to put the phrase overcoming selfishness beside it. I honestly believe one of the greatest pandemics of our generation today is self. The focus on self. Uh, The conversations around Human rights, my right, my right, my right. Now, how many are thankful that we do have human rights? I am. But when it becomes a focal point of our discussion, when it becomes the the anchor in which we live and the anchor in which we communicate, well, I have the right to. I don't think Jesus ever thought that way. He actually said to his believers, the first thing you need to do is to deny yourself, then take up your cross, then follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, Follow me. Why did he say deny yourself first? Why was it important? Why was it at the top of the list? Well, Jesus understood the same issue that the prodigal son had, that many in our generation have today, that selfishness is something that leads us to a very bad place. It leads us to a very dark place. It's okay. I just want to explain to you or kind of express some of the different key issues of selfishness that play out in this story from the prodigal son's perspective. Verse 12, it says, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. You have to understand, under Old Testament law, there was definitely a a, a design and a plan in place on how inheritance was divided up. It was very clear. There was no uh, issues of confusion. Everyone knew who was the first son, second son, and so on, and which percentage of the inheritance they would receive or get. So there was a legal um, binding right from the son to actually have that inheritance. The only problem is, is he was asking for it before his father had died. I don't know about you, but that's, um, that's not exactly going to produce a lot of warm and fuzzy family moments. I wish you were dead, Dad, so that I could have your money. Not very positive. But what was the issue here? What was the issue with the prodigal son? Here's the issue. The son valued his father's stuff more than he valued his father. That's it. Relationship wasn't essential. What he could get from his father was. It goes on in verse 13, and it says, and not many days after, he journeyed to a far country. One version says a far off country, a far away country. He wanted to leave. Think about this. Whenever selfishness takes root, the very thing that often happens in our lives as human beings is that we actually run away from the relationships that God has intended for us to be, uh, to have, and to have life-giving relationships. It's the automatic response of every human. How do I know? Because I've done it. It's ridiculous. Some of the most ridiculous, dumb decisions I have ever made in my life is to run away from relationships that were life-giving. But I do. Why do we do that? Self. Self takes over. Amen? 
Perhaps the son, I have thought about this, I thought to myself, well, perhaps the son was tired of living under someone else's rules. I don't know, maybe that was it. Um, maybe the son craved freedom and independence. I don't know, maybe that was it. I mean, there could be a whole bunch of things. How many know today that, that, that our children will have a certain response based upon their own environment, their own experiences, those things that they desire? And so each response from each child may be slightly different. Maybe it has a connection point. But here's what I've kind of come down to. Why in the world did he have all those things? Well, maybe because the son wanted the material benefits of sonship, but without the obligations and responsibilities of sonship. That was that. Okay, moving on. Um, So what was the result of the son's selfishness? Verse 13, he wasted his possessions. Verse 14, he spent it all, rose a severe famine, began to be in want. Verse 15, he went into the fields to feed swines. He ended up eating it himself. And if you know the Jewish customs, they weren't even supposed to be close to them. Because pigs were considered off-duty. Aren't you glad you're Canadian and we can eat bacon? Hallelujah! Oh, Jesus! Jesus loves us! Bacon is such a blessing. It's amazing. I love it. Okay, Um, verse 16. No one gave him anything. How many know that when you're in this dire place and you're looking for help, oftentimes you go to this place that I believe God ordains where no one's there. And you go, what's going on? Because he's coming to you and he wants to see who are you going to seek out now? Who are you going to chase after? So he ordains the independent place. He, indep- he, he ordains this quiet place where no one is around. Why? Because he sees that in that moment, it's when someone has an aha moment and they go, this really sucks. And i got to do something about it. And then you have two choices. You can default to more selfishness, but he just saw the pattern, verse 13, 14, 15, and 16, of how that was playing out. He didn't like it. So he had to make a different decision. Verse 17, then he came to himself. Ha. Huh. For the 101 class, we're actually going to talk about this on Wednesday night, so don't miss it. All right? It's going to be awesome. He came to his senses. He had an aha moment. He repented. Can I say this morning, it wasn't a New Year's resolution. You know, I think if I just put some other things in place, and if I think something a a little bit different way, or maybe if I, you know, don't eat bacon in the month of January, then maybe I'll lose five pounds. I don't know. But somehow he didn't come to the conclusion that this had to be a New Year's resolution. That wasn't an option. It was repent, a change of action, a change of heart. Not as I learned from my uh, Sunday school teacher, not a 360-degree turn because we were trying to tell her that you kind of ended up in the same spot. It's like, yeah, repentance, it's like a 360-degree turn. Isn't it 180? Oh, yeah, 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 180, that's what we want. Yeah, yeah, she got the numbers wrong, but it's okay. She was well-meaning. But you have to understand that, number one, he had to admit he was in bad shape. Number two, he didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't make excuses. He had to call it what it was. He recognized the cause of the problem. He knew he no longer had the right to be called his father's son. Even though the father didn't think that, he thought that. He determined to seek grace, not justice. Hmm. Justice keeps you in the pig pen, 
Grace brings you back to the Father's house. Big difference. Big difference. And that's just what you and I have to do. Repent. In other words, we've got to find ourselves. We've got to recognize how we got into this mess. And we need to cry out to Jesus to forgive us and to break off the chains of those patterns in our lives. Amen? 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Notice this verse doesn't say he'll think about it. It doesn't say, well, depending on the day, he's just going to do his little cha-ching, and if it comes out with a big you know, thumbs-up sign, then you're good. If it's doing one of that, it's no good for you that day. No, he doesn't do that. He says, I will forgive you if you come and repent and, and literally ask for forgiveness and spe- specify what you've done. When we deal with our kids, I honestly, can I just give a little parenting 101 for a second? I cannot stand when someone comes out and says, yeah, I'm sorry. It drives me nuts as a parent. So what, what we've done from day one is, no, you're going to ask for forgiveness, and you're going to say what you're asking for forgiveness for. What did you do? Well, I had an attitude, and I didn't treat you very nice, and I said some very, not very nice things. And what do you say? Forgive me for doing that. There we go. We're good. All right. Everything's better. You know what automatically happens when you do that? Your conscience is, is purified and you're good to go. You can move on. We don't hang them over their head. We just, hey, get up, keep going on. That's awesome. Verse 18, it says, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Can I say this? This verse is so key because he resolved in his heart to make a choice and to actually be intentional to follow it through. Verse 20, it says, and he arose And he came to his father. How many know that when you've got an issue between you and someone else, the last thing you want to do is go face-to-face? Come on, let's be honest. Face-to-face because you're sitting there going, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to come as a result of this. I have no idea how comfortable, how awkward I'm going to feel. I don't know if I even want to do this. Yet my pastor is speaking about messages from Sunday, so I'm saying I probably should do this. So I probably should. But how many know face-to-face is hard? How many know if we were just being easy and everything, we could just text each other or Facebook message each other or we could just email each other? But how many know at the end of the day, face-to-face is the best? It's awkward, it's painful, but it's the best. Why? Because true reconciliation happens, connection points. When you actually see 93% of all of the communication that happens is nonverbal and you look at them in their eye. The Bible says that the eye is the window to the soul. How many have ever had a conversation with somebody, you look at them in the eye and you know exactly what they're thinking before they even say it? It's not because you're like this incredible person that's smart, although some of you are. It's that you can see the very pattern of humanity being played out in all of our lives. We do the same thing. I do the same thing. How many know we all do the same thing? Nothing's different or inherently changed from human to human. It's the same kind of deal. The younger son wanted to be reconciled to his father. Hmm. Think about this. The, the son gave up something of great worth. Life with his father. To chase something that had very little worth. Worldly possessions and honor. I believe our response today needs to be the same as the son, which we are going to rise, leave the pig pen, and go back to the father's house. The father's house is full of everything that we need. But there's another person in this story. It's this, the older brother. And I want to say this morning... If the prodigal son had issues of overcoming selfishness, I would say the older brother has issues overcoming unforgiveness. How many know unforgiveness is a, is a key issue? 
But let's read his story. It starts in Luke chapter 15. He comes near the end of the story, and he says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he's received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. Now look at his response, verse 28. First thing out of his mouth. First thought in his mind. He became angry. And it wasn't because he was hangry and didn't eat for a couple days. He was angry. He was angry. Can I say this this morning? Unforgiveness always manifests itself in anger, bitterness, and resentment. It is exactly what happens all the time. Once again, how do I know? Because I've been through it. I've been on both sides of that. I've been the guy that's lived in unforgiveness for years. And can I come to tell you the one honest, simple conclusion that I've come to? It's no fun. And you become almost detestable to those that are around you because you just are no fun all the time. First thing out of your mouth is negative. Second word out of your mouth, negative. Third word out of your mouth, negative. And then by the end, you're just setting off nuclear bombs of negativity. Trust me, it doesn't feel good. I know because it consumed me for a number of years in my earlier days. It's no fun. Verse 28, and it says, and he would not go in. He was angry and would not go in. Where was he not going into? His father's presence. His father's house. I don't want to be around my father. A person with unforgiveness refuses to go into the father's presence. He goes on and says, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, lo, these many years. Can I say this? Unforgiveness always keeps score. Always. Remember when you did? You know, witness what we do. Unforgiveness always keeps score. We, we just let the scroll down and we just rhyme it all off. Aren't you thankful that when you come to Jesus and, he, and you actually get right with God, that he actually takes the scroll and throws it away? That's the heartbeat of Jesus. He throws it away. He doesn't write over it. He just takes it and blows the thing up, sends it to the sea of, of, of forgiveness. It's gone. Oh, I love how he does things. I wish we were more like that, but it's awesome. Verse 29, it says, I've been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment at any time. Unforgiveness always boasts of its own record. It's based in pride. Verse 29, this last part, it says, and yet you never gave me a young goat. I don't know about you guys, but every day I wake up and I go, Lord, can you just give me a young goat? It's what I've always wanted, Lord. <laughs> now, Lord Jesus, I just want a young goat. Please, Lord God, that would just make my life. For some reason, back then, the young goat was the bomb. You know what I'm saying? Who needed anything else? We didn't need an iPhone X. Just give me the young goat, Lord. It just would solve all of life's problems. Unforgiveness always complains. Verse 30, but as soon as this son of yours, look what happened. This son of yours, he divides the family. It's not my brother. This son of yours. You messed up. It's on you. And you need to make it right to me. Because I was the good one. Right? But as soon as this son of yours comes, you devoured the fatted calf for him. Yet he devoured his own livelihood. The one that you gave him with harlots. What is he doing? Unforgiveness accuses and exposes. 
Verse 30, the last part, it says, and you killed the fatted calf from people in unforgiveness always get offended when someone else gets blessed. It's just the way it goes. How do I know? Because I've lived it. I can honestly say unforgiveness is awful. Verse 31 and 32, I love the father's response. He says, and he said to him, son, you're always with me. And all that I have is yours. And it was right that we celebrate that somebody was lost and is now found. It doesn't matter where their story led them to and how they came back. It is always right that we celebrate when someone was lost and now becomes found. Do you believe that this morning? I want to end with the father's response. The father's response. How did Jesus know the heart of the father's response? Well, a couple of chapters later in Luke chapter 19, he actually gives away the whole mission of his father. He says, for the son of man came to find and restore that which was lost. Even in our most selfish state, God loves us. Even in our state of total unforgiveness, God loves us. John Stott, a theologian, wrote this. He says, church history is the story of God's incredible patience with his wayward people. It couldn't be true. More true. That's us, right? It's about restoring the lost connection between divinity and humanity. That's the heartbeat of God for us this morning. Look at the Father's love embracing that which was lost. Verse 20, it says, but when he was still a great way off, his father saw him. I've always wondered, why did he see him when he was a great way off? I think he looked for him every morning, probably five or six times a day. God, is this the day that my son's coming home? Is this going to be the day when our family's going to be one again? We're going to be all together under the same roof. He goes and he saw him and he had compassion and he ran and he fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. Verse 22, it says, But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe. The robe is a ceremonial robe given by people of wealth to those that are what they would consider to be the guest of honor. He says, Put a ring on his hand. The ring signified family covenant, connection, authority. It says, put sandals on his feet. The sandals were those for only a, only a free man would wear. Sandals would never be owned by a slave. They would always be around and bare feet, which is also why they weren't welcomed in people's homes for that reason. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be married. What's the bottom line? What's the bottom line of this whole story? God's heart, the end of the day, is always about a changed life. It's always about someone who's lost becoming found. That's what it's all about. I don't know about you, but I've got people in my life, I've got people I've known for a long time and people I've known for a very short time. And I see them. And every time I hear their story and every time I hear what's going on in their life, my heart breaks because I can just hear the heart of God looking down from heaven saying, they're broken, but they're reaching out to the wrong people. They're reaching out to the wrong thing. They're reaching out to the wrong issue that would, they think, bring them comfort. But it's not. It's only me. It's only the Father that can bring that. I honestly believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that the Father's here this morning. And he has one very simple question to you. 
He's asking a very simple question. He wants you to come home. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com.